0: Please be seated. Morning. morning. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. This morning's gospel is part of a larger discussion in Luke on the meaning of money and wealth. In the previous chapter, is the parable we traditionally call the prodigal son, which, among other things, raises the question of whether a family's wealth is more important than one of its children. After this morning's reading, it'll be the the reading from next Sunday, we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which leads us to see that wealth is for the easing of other people's suffering in the here and now before the die is cast and it's too late. In between them is this odd parable about a household steward of dubious moral character. As with all parables, we can't just take this story as a straightforward exhortation about what God wants and approves. Parables just show us a vision and asks us to look at it, to reflect on it. If we do that, hearing the parable on its own terms, then this surprising story has considerable power to make us see in new ways. First, let's talk about the characters. The rich man, also called the master, enters the parable only to fire the steward and then at the end to commend him. What sort of person is he? Well, he's rich. And he seems pretty unmoved by the hardship that he's bringing on his steward. But that's about it for him. The debtors receive even less character development than the rich master does. All we know about them is the amounts that they owe. But apart from that, these debtors, like their rich master, are what literary studies people called flat characters. are just there to move the story along. In contrast, the steward's character is remarkably well fleshed out for such a short story. He is first introduced with the accusation that he is incompetently wasting the things under his charge. And for that, he's to be fired. In verse 3, we can see his thought process. I made the mistake of putting verse numbers in the text of my sermon and realize that y'all don't have verse numbers, so I'll do my best. Uh, In verse 3, we have uh, his inner process. He says, "Um, What will I do now, now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. We can see his inner thought process, planning to survive and secure his livelihood as well as he can. His terse summary of his quandary, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg, shows us his character better than a whole paragraph full of exposition would do. The next verse showed us, shows us his satisfaction as he comes up with a viable plan. We still don't know what that plan is. But we see that he does and we see his realization that his hope lies in the community's goodwill. No narrator tells us what the steward plans. It's revealed only by his action when he sits down with each debtor and instructs them to discount their bill. Essentially buying friends for himself by changing the ledgers, cheating the master out of part of what's owed him Yet no narrator stands up and tells us that these actions are wrong or right. We're just given the picture and asked to look at it. The question comes to my mind, maybe it does to yours, although it's not raised in the story yet. Is the steward doing what's right? And the answer also from my mind would seem to be clearly not. And yet... The rich master praises the steward at the beginning of verse 8. Now identified as a dishonest or unjust steward, he praises him for his wisdom. NRSV translates that um, a shrewdness. But it's, it's a standard wisdom word. It's a positive trait. It's the same word used of a person who builds his house on a rock rather than on sand. It's the same word of the virgins who keep their their lamps full of oil so that they don't run out in the middle of the night. So when we see shrewd in the NRSV's translation, we shouldn't see that as a kind of criticism. Rather, I think we have to see the master as expressing genuine approval of the steward's transgressive actions. But in what sense can the steward's actions be considered wise? The subsequent verses give four different answers that appear to be placed side by side in order to convey a sense of the conversation in Luke's community about money. Grabbed the wrong thing. I have markings on here. Uh, So four different um, sort of interpretive uh, comments that get made. First... Uh, about two-thirds of the way down the page, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. That's the first application. It it seems to understand the story as a meditation on the wisdom of securing one's livelihood by building relationships with others, even if those relationships are self-serving. The master commends the steward not for his shady dealings as such, but for using the scam prudently. The steward is one of the children of this world whose wisdom serves as an example for the children of light to follow. Is the example that we're supposed to follow that we should be charitable by giving away other people's property? So it would seem according to the second half of verse 8. In verse 9, we have a different speaker, I think, uh, applying the story in a slightly different way. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Uh, I'll show you what I mean by that being a different way of applying it. In what sense can the discounted parts of the grain and the olive oil be termed unrighteous or unjust wealth. In what sense can that be true? Was this particular wealth unjust because it had been stolen by the steward? Or was it already unjust before it was stolen? Perhaps because of unjust business practices like those condemned in our reading from Amos, using deliberately unbalanced scales and pricing gimmicks. If the wealth was already unrighteous and the steward charged it off, then the steward may be commended not only for his savvy, but for his charity. This is actually the dominant interpretation given by early Christian theologians like St. Augustine, who saw this parable as an object, living in, or an object lesson in charitable giving. An updated version of this interpretation sees the rich master as part of the corrupt aristocracy who comes so often under the prophet's scornful gaze so that the entire economic system is corrupted by injustice. The modern New Testament scholar Francois Beauvain quips, the only way to make dirty money clean is to give it away. And there have been Christians over the years, for example, Saint Francis of Assisi and his companion, Claire, who advocated abandoning all wealth because it was tainted by the world's injustice, choosing instead to live lives of purposeful poverty. I think all of us should struggle a bit with how our consumerism consumerism contributes to global suffering. If you're like me, you're tempted to stand on a soapbox, or maybe in a pulpit, maybe with just a touch of self-righteousness, and do what you can not to participate in the system. But the speaker of verse 9 advocates using the admittedly contaminated wealth to foster community and to improve justice. That's two, two interpretive moves. The third and the fourth are sort of similar uh, in that they, they articulate more establishment-friendly views. In verses 10 to 12, we have a different speaker yet drawing a different lesson from the parable and this time, in my opinion, expressing almost the opposite perspective to that offered in the previous, previous verses. Here's what it says. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? Now the parable is redirected to talk about dishonest people and whether they can be ever trusted again. The position taken here is not in any way a criticism of the economic system, but rather represents a perspective usually taken by the powerful, the perspective of the wealthy master, if you will, or to use a modern term, the perspective of the bourgeois. Finally, verse 13 brings us uh, to our fourth interpretation, which says, no slave can serve two masters, For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, that saying also appears in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. It's something known from Jesus in other contexts. But saying it in this context just about has to mean that any use of wealth must be avoided. So you see what I mean about how the author of Luke, or maybe an editor, has placed these very different understandings of what the parable is about side by side. So what we have here is not a straightforward teaching about money, but a conversation between diverse people as they engage with one another about how Christians should think about wealth. Like Jesus' disciples, we're invited to wrestle with the question of how best to use money for the kingdom of God. And there is room for disagreement on that. What there isn't any room for disagreement on is the fact that God is paying particular attention to how we treat the poor. We participate in an economic system that, as Amos says, essentially treats the poor as commodities to be traded. Little more than consumers to whom we might sell things. We take as much money as we can get for as little product as possible, all to increase our profit. And the harm that does to the poor, the harm it does to human society as a whole, to the environment, rarely troubles our conscience because what can I do about it? I'm just one person. I totally get that, and it's the same with me. So like Luke, I'm not going to give you the right answer uh, on the question of money. I'm going to open the question and let you wrestle with it. If we remember that God cares how we treat the poor in our community, that God holds us accountable not only for how we personally treat them, but for how we allow our society to treat them. Then we can discuss and even disagree about how best to serve them. But we have to agree that making their lives better is what we're really trying to do. Make friends for yourselves by means of unjust wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes, friends, community, enemies, even the people regarded as worthless by everyone else. These are all infinitely more important than all of our wealth combined. And whereas money can never last, the relationships we build do. So invest wisely.